You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 93. Do the benefits of life-saving rules outweigh the negative consequences? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proben, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we have a look at the evidence surrounding it. David, would you like to tell us a bit about today's question? Yeah, Drew, today's question is actually one that we've been asked almost right from the start if we do a podcast on life-saving rules. And I've had a couple of goes at trying to find some decent research, and there really isn't a whole lot around. And we'll talk about that on the way through. But Ben Hutchinson, who um, many of our listeners would know, does a great job summarizing uh, research on LinkedIn and his own webpage, posted this paper this week. And I kind of thought, well, it's probably as good an opportunity as ever to make sure that we get a life-saving rules episode inside the first 100 episodes. So that's what we're going to do today. So right back in episode two, Drew, we asked the question, why don't people follow the rules? So it's been a while before we've talked sort of directly about rules and compliance and safety. So what do you do you want to sort of give us your initial thoughts on this topic? Surely you think about it a little bit. So growing up in system safety, the idea of life-saving rules or golden rules or even sometimes literally called Ten Commandments didn't crop up so much. We we don't sort of have those rules around the engineering of safety. So I've really for most of my career, just considered it one of the sort of weird thing that health and safety sometimes does, uh, sort of like mild curiosity. But I really sort of ran head smack into them when I was doing some consulting for a major mining company that had directly asked us to come in and design some courses for them around the new view of safety. And we were simultaneously delivering these courses to management about new ways of looking at investigations and understanding work and understanding why things go wrong other than through the sort of lens of human error. And then right in the middle of this, the company launched a new sort of 10 golden rules program where the CEO just laid down the law and said, here are 10 rules and thou shalt not no matter what else we're doing in safety, break one of these rules and you're out. And it was bizarre because the safety team knew that some of those rules were things that could not be followed, that you know were being routinely broken in a company that was trying to understand why people do what they do at work. And yet management had, it made sense to management to have this lay down the law and do not admit to us that you do not follow these 10 things. Yeah, Joe, I think many of our listeners will have I suppose that's it. I was sort of nodding along and I'm sure many of our listeners were nodding along with that as well. And you mentioned, you know, some companies do this. Look, these are very popular uh, safety rules. Call them golden rules, cardinal rules, life-saving rules, life-savers. I haven't actually heard them called the Ten Commandments, Drew, but um, maybe maybe in some places they are. But there's not a lot of research. You know, that what there is, is there's a lot of, you know, pontification from within the safety science community and within the practitioner community on the role and the usefulness of, of safety rules. So we might try and break that down. But Drew, I did try and find a bit more research on this. And like I said, most of the studies are, are case studies and, and most of the studies tie to incident rates and, and none that I really wanted to talk about, except for one survey that was done back in the early 2000s with 500 frontline workers across 33 mine sites, just asking about the rules and, and the value and following them and so on. And basically one third of these 500 people said, we regularly don't follow the rules and our managers support us not to follow them. The reasons are the rules lack application to the real world. They're too complex. There's too many of them. They're too rigid. Um, the workforce aren't involved in the development of these rules. And basically the conclusion of that research, which is over 15 minutes ago, was that management and regulators should not continue to just keep producing more rules. Yet that's really what's happened since that research was done in, say, the early 2000s that we'll, we'll talk about today. Drew, there's some other research around. Do you want to just sort of give us, yeah, give us your thoughts? So I'll, I'll talk about the specific research in a moment, but I thought it was worth pointing out that I think one of the motivation for having the idea of like golden rules or 10 rules originally comes from rule simplification. So that's, you know, your first response when you think, oh, my company's got too many rules. 
is, okay, let's boil it down to just those ones that are absolutely essential. And let's get rid of all of the complexity. Let's put in these ones at the very least we can all agree on. They're all going to be hard and fast. Um, And I think that also feeds in when organizations are trying to move towards notions of organizational justice in their investigations, that it's they think it's important to draw these bright lines and say, it's not fair to punish people if the expectations are not clear. So let's make the expectations really, really clear. Yeah, you might, there are other rules that might be negotiable, other rules that aren't clear, but these 10, we've kept them simple, we've made them clear, we've told you what the consequences are. If you break them, you can't complain that you know we're punishing you for something that we made absolutely clear. But that all sort of rests on a notion of rules that I think is contested a lot in the academic literature. Um, so two that are work, worth pulling out are, one of them is some work by Andrew Hale, uh, Working to Rule or Working Safely. If I recall correctly, that's actually published in a volume called uh, Trapping Safety into Rules, which is an entire volume of um, basically essays about the different roles that rules play in safety. Uh, It's one of those ones I think should be on any practitioner's shelf, even though it's an academic book. Just sort of every chapter is just a different way of thinking about how rules fit into your organisation. Yeah, Drew, it was also published as a two-part paper series, um, I think in safety science as well. And, and sort of talks about the different types of, like really has a good discussion around rules, not so much as what to do, but just all of the considerations around what, what, what can be managed through rules, what can't be managed through rules, how rules should be developed and designed, what are the different types of rules and what, what's the intention and the outcome behind those different rules. So nothing about just culture, nothing about the implications of it, but just essentially a, a, a really big open discussion about how rules may or may not be applicable in different situations. And just to give a flavour of the types of discussion people have around rules, uh, one of our colleagues, Guido Karim, was looking at rules when it comes to uh, flight em- in-flight emergencies. And one of the things that he showed through his work is that even when we write things down as very strict procedures, that's not how people think about rules or how they use rules. Often when we give people instructions, those instructions form more of a resource, uh, Gitter calls it a resource for action, rather than constraints on action. And that's sort of the general debate about what is a rule. People tend to think of rules as constraining. They're like laws that you stick within that you don't step outside of. Uh, But as we'll see in this paper today, most golden rules aren't written like that. They're not rules about what you shouldn't do, so they don't set clear boundaries. The other way of thinking for rules is that they're guidelines for action. So they're things that you draw on. They tell you how to do things. They give you capacity. They give you ways of doing things. But those two different sets of rules give very different notions of what it means when someone doesn't follow the rule. Is it they're simply not choosing to use a resource that's not helpful in this particular situation? Or are they actively breaking something that they weren't supposed to break? Depends on how you see the rule in the first place. Yeah, Drew, I think I like Guido's paper title. I think from memory it was using a procedure doesn't mean following it. And I think that's the idea about rules is is um, are they a resource fraction or are they something that is um, that is a constraint on work or, or both. And so we wrote, Drew, we wrote a, a chapter of the Australian Institute of Health and Safety Body of Knowledge titled Rules and Procedures for Safety a couple of years ago and did a sort of big scan of this literature. And I think one of the interesting things in there is where rules become very empowering for people because they sort of set margins for safety. So they empower people to act and to, you know, to stop their work and adjust their work because um, that safety margin has been made very clear. So I think, I think we're not, we're not, I don't think we're here today to say, you know, you shouldn't have safety rules in your organization. We're, we're here to have kind of like a broad discussion around how might they help and my, my, how might they hinder uh, your overall safety objectives. I think for, For golden rules in particular, the question isn't so much around the sort of fundamental purpose of rules. The question is, is it sort of possible and reasonable to distill rules down into a small set of things that are have a sort of special status? Because even though other rules might be negotiable, can you decide that some rules are not that, you know, some procedures are there to help. We accept that sometimes there might be valid reasons to break rules or at least valid reasons to not follow rules and to adapt the rules to match the way work is done. Is it both true and useful that there are some situations you can just say, regardless of context, this is so obvious, so universal, so absolute 
that it should always apply and that it is a good way to protect the workforce by setting that up as a perimeter fence around people's behaviour. Andrew even thinks that may seem always entirely fit into that category, like, say, wearing your seatbelt while you're driving a car. Some workplaces, in some situations, you'll find the messy realities of work uh, can conspire against even the seemingly most black and white uh, workplace rule. But Drew, I, I sort of thought about uh, experience that I had um, in my career when the company I was I was working with had sort of a really deteriorating safety performance, and and again, managers in that company thought, well, we need to put in place more rules. So I ran a little project for a week where I sent leaders and safety people into the field to engage with workers. I think we hit about 70 sites in a week uh, all over the business and and just with a couple of key questions about, you know, what do you think is working well for safety? What do you think is not working well? What could the organisation do to help you, your site, you know, be more safe? And, you know, visited 70 sites engaged with hundreds and hundreds of workers and not one person said, can we please have more rules? So it's kind of interesting. The things that they asked for were things about, you know, communication and resources and equipment and workforce capability and, and a whole bunch of stuff that in their mind would make their workplaces safer. And I guess I just reflect on that a lot at the front line. There was no one asking for more rules um, or be more disciplined around the rules that we had. Yeah. F- f- fascinating that because workers will often sometimes impose these expectations on other workers that they won't on themselves. And so it's fascinating that they don't see rules in that category. As you Even to control other people, we ought to have more rules about this. Yeah, it's a good point. But David, just before we dive into the paper, just to illustrate where we're going, I really would like to hear a little bit more about the seatbelt story. Because I think this is one of those things that is behind the rationale for having golden rules, is that often we can't conceive of a context where that would be okay. And so ever since you said it, I've been sort of sitting, struggling through it. I'm thinking, hold on, surely seatbelts are a universal, surely there is no context where that shouldn't be a universal rule. So I think it comes to how to make work easy and goal conflict around work. So say, as I've been involved in a couple of scenarios, um, and one is in very rural and remote outback locations, where you're driving through farmland to access remote oil and gas wells and rigs or something. And through the course of a two-kilometre trip, you might have to go through 15 or 20 farm gates out of your vehicle, open the farm gate, back in your vehicle, drive 100 metres at a speed-restricted limit of 10 kilometres an hour. And that journey uh, takes maybe twice as long, putting your seatbelt on and off, and you do that all day, every day. The question becomes is, after you turn off that public road, is it okay for that driver to make their work easier and more effective to have a situation where they don't have to wear their seatbelt for that period of time? Or if you take an absolute safety point of view and you put, does it make sense to put alarms in place on seatbelts? And then if people don't wear their seatbelt and they're moving more than three kilometers an hour, they get a written warning from the company. Or do you then have people connecting the seatbelt behind their back and just jumping in and out of the car anyway? So this idea of how do you work with your people about the realities of how work happens and what the risk you're trying to control is and what other operational goals they have. And I've had the same situation with forklift operations as well. Companies putting seatbelts onto forklifts and still expecting the same pick rate for manual picking activities. And I think, Drew, that's sort of some of the scenarios that were in my head when I was thinking about once you get in the messy details of work, even even some seemingly very clear things can become pretty messy pretty quick. Does that answer the sort of question at all, or have I traded off safety? It, it, it has me honestly conflicted because because I'm hearing that story and I'm still thinking, okay, but the, the safest thing is still to wear the seatbelt. I would say the extent you've got me convinced is not that this is a rule that wouldn't be desirable, but it's definitely stopped being one of my top 10 things at the company that I think are so inviolable and so important that it should hold a special status. So you know, you've, I guess you've at least convinced me that the rule shouldn't have that high status, but I'd almost still, you know, want it to be a rule, just accepting that sometimes people break it. Yeah, I just, I just kind of think something like that doesn't need any organisational effort or attention. Maybe the forklift one's a bit different, but it should drive different types of conversation. Like if we've got manual picking activities in and out of forklifts and pedestrian forklifts, like why don't we invest in different, uh, different pick and pack arrangements? Um, why don't we actually redesign the work to make it easy for people? Like I always try to put myself in a position, would I want to be doing that 15 or 20 times and still be expected to do the same amount? Like, I think when work gets hard, we just 
I guess, create a divide between management and the safety profession and the workforce because um, we're just making lives hard. So, so that part of it, I definitely agree that I think the imposition of the rule has stopped that conversation from happening. Once the rule is there, no one can admit that they do drive without the seatbelt. So they can't even tell you about this circumstance where they have to open the gate every 50 metres. So another example I had, Drew, was uh, reversing trucks. So weren't allowed to, the, the alarms would go if the car was moving, the, the truck actually, very large trucks, not very large, very large, but um, delivery type trucks. And they would, the alarm would go off and the person would get uh, penalised if they went forward or backwards again more than two or three kilometres an hour without a seatbelt on. Yet in reversing trucks, uh, the people said to us, actually, they need to twist their whole body around to have good vision and visibility backwards. And they, so they take their seatbelt off while reversing. And I actually think uh, from a legal perspective, you're allowed to do that in the law. You're allowed to reverse with your seatbelt off to twist your whole body around and get good vision. And so the rule was actually making them reverse heavy vehicles in places like schools and, and workplaces in a less safe way to comply with the seatbelt rule while reversing, which was different to everything they'd done in their whole career. Yes, yeah, so I like that example because it's unquestionably actually a safety trade-off. One of the ones I was thinking of was, a, I guess I'm at risk of identifying the company, but I guess if they feel identified, then they deserve it. Talking of big trucks, we're talking about genuinely big trucks now. Uh, the company had a couple of incidents where uh, mining trucks had gone over the top of utes, just like, you know, monster truck style, just driven straight over the top and crushed it beneath. And so one of their golden rules was that you shouldn't be allowed to park light vehicles within the operating area where they operate the mining trucks. So basically, light vehicles could be driven down into the pit, but they couldn't ever be parked except in very specially designated areas. And what confused me is they implemented this rule without first checking how often are vehicles parked. You know, why not just like send up drones and pretend the rule exists and just check all of the places where the rule is currently being violated and find out why, because there might be very good reasons why that rule is currently not universal. Um, and it turned out that a parked ute is your only air-conditioned office in a lot of circumstances. And so the reason why the utes were getting parked up is the supervisors need somewhere to do the paperwork. So they'd park it out of the way and do the paperwork. And you make it a sudden cast-iron rule, you've now got a direct conflict between the safety rule that says you've got to complete the risk assessment or you've got to complete the deck five and the rule about parking up the ute. You've got to choose between one or the other. Yeah, and so the paperwork gets done in the office instead of at the work front. I had in my mind when you said that, you know, a light vehicle is hard enough to see, but if someone's parking somewhere else and now walking across an operational area. So I think, I mean, we've had a pretty long conversation about seatbelts and, and driving, but I guess this is, this is sort of the complexity of rules and, you know, how they actually uh, hit the work fronts and, and the workers and, yeah, create unintended consequences. And so, Drew, do we want to introduce the paper now? Okay, so the paper is called Golden Safety Rules. Are they keeping us safe? Uh, the authors of this paper are safety consultants, uh, Samantha Fraser and Daryl Colgan. Uh, because they're consultants, I don't have a lot of background info on the authors. Um, the paper was published in a thing called the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, APIA Journal. Um, so essentially, this is a trade publication, not an academic journal. That doesn't necessarily say bad things about what's published in it. Often the type of things that are published in trade associations are much closer to the real world concerns of people at work. And a lot of people working for consultancies are very academically minded. You know, one way to think of consultancy is it is commercially paid for research rather than research, which is in that sort of conducted within the university zone where there's a lot of government subsidy. So it tends to be uh, less academically rigorous, but that doesn't necessarily make it less rigorous in a practical sense. And it tends to be far more focused on direct practical questions. The downside is consultants almost always have got their own products, their own axe to grind. I don't think that applies in this particular case. I honestly, from the paper, couldn't tell whether the authors were pro or anti-golden safety rules. They seem to be fairly straightforwardly representing what they'd been told by their participants without putting any sort of spin on it. Um, their participants definitely had spin, but the, I, th I think the authors 
just did a very balanced job of reporting what they were told. Any bias would be in exactly how they structured the questions. And unfortunately, the questions that they asked aren't included in the publication. Yeah, so Drew, this was, like you mentioned, published by APIA, um, the Australian Oil and Gas Industry Association, if you like, and, and probably would have been presented at a conference. And and the research was done in about 2015, 16. Uh, and so life-saving rules were very, very topical. You know, that it sort of started in Shell in the early 2000s and then by you come across the industry and then the big publication, I think, went out in 2013 where IOGP, the International Association of Oil and Gas Producing Companies, made up about 60 of the largest oil and gas majors, had analysed 332 fatalities between 2005 and 2008 and then spent a couple of years kind of working through these, these fatalities, had concluded They'd concluded that 83% of them were related to human factors uh, to do with occupational safety related human factors. Only 16% of these fatalities were process safety related. And so they were seeing all these rule-based errors where it wasn't skill-based errors that workers didn't know how to do work, but they were rule-based errors. So people were doing things that you know, they shouldn't have been doing. So this the industry sort of published these, these rules. They were very widely adopted. I guess, Drew, we started seeing case studies come out. So um, there's a paper that's cited in this one, again, to do with sort of Shell saying that they've had a 75% reduction in fatalities since they implemented the rules and was attributing that 75% reduction to the life-saving rules. So I was in the oil and gas industry at the time, Drew, and I'd, I was actually on the IOGP safety committee just after this, this publication was released. And sort of everything in the industry at the time was to do with safety was centered around these these life-saving rules. I mean, that was really the only discussion that was happening. David, I, I was fairly careful about saying that I thought the consultants who wrote this particular paper we're talking about took a fairly neutral stand. When it comes to companies reporting on their own safety record and giving attribution for it, I, th I think we don't think we need to be that charitable. Um, you know, when a company tells you by the people who implemented the program hey, we put in place this program and it is responsible for this drastic reduction in injuries, then I think we need to take a very sceptical look at both how they determined that reduction and how they determined the attribution. And I think that a lot of the reason why life-saving rules were being plugged so hard was to do with companies that were trying to show themselves as good at safety through some of this very non-reflective self-aggrandizement of their safety programs. One way to get a name in safety is to be good at safety. Another way to get a name in safety is to tell everyone how good you are at safety. And some companies take the first strategy and some companies take the second strategy. Yeah, Drew, look, I, I guess, um, look, I think I think when it comes to, to safety, I think all of these safety practices, there's so much going on. And, and in our safety work model, we talk about demonstrated safety and this need for organisations to feel safe and tell everyone else that they're safe, sort of the nature of the stakeholders that organisations have. And what Eric Holdnagel said, and we've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, it's, you know, organisations need to feel safe and be safe. You know, the shame is when the former gets in, in the way of the latter or the former takes all of the organisation's attention. And I guess that's uh, what we have in in these types of situations where people claim victory over, over safety and, and let a, you know, a simple lie be believed rather than trying to understand the complex truth. Yeah. But I, I do want to say there that I, I think we can distinguish between the companies that implemented it, and the overall goal of life-saving rules. So we're going to see through this paper some direct association of life-saving rules with some particular strands of safety thought, but I don't think they have to be. I think there is almost like a new view argument in favour of things like life-saving rules as a simplification and as a way of dealing with clutter. And I think it's an open question whether it's effective or not in doing that and something that is worth better investigation than we have at the moment. So I guess what I'm doing is teeing up in advance. I'm going to be fairly critical throughout this paper, but that's of one particular line of thought supporting life-saving rules. It's not, the, the idea itself just hasn't been properly investigated enough to draw firm conclusions. Yeah. Okay, Drew. So I'll let you be, I'll let you play that role. And I'll make sure that everyone's got your email address to send any <laughs> any kind of email to. But, but so look, let's go. So there's some main lines of inquiry and, and some of these lines of inquiry are, I think, pregnant with their own answer. But um, there's a few lines here. So the question is, are life-saving rules associated with punitive safety cultures? Have life-saving rules outlived their usefulness? Has 
the role of lifesaving rules being replaced by more maturing operational risk management programs. Do we actually comply with the lifesaving rules within our companies? And how do we know? Do lifesaving rules continue to address our major hazards? And how do we apply lifesaving rules to our contractors? So I guess uh, the people involved in this research would have been hearing all of these things across industry and, and sort of packaged all these things up into some interview questions. Andrew, from a method point of view, there was 15 companies involved and, and they came across the mining, power, rail, manufacturing, chemical and oil and gas industries. And I guess this is where we start to get really narrow, really fast. So there was a one hour interview conducted with one representative of each of those 15 companies. And the participants were either a senior health and safety professional or one of the operations managers. So we're, what we're going to talk about is just one person from each of 15 companies in a management position um, asking about their their company's experience of life-saving rules. I, don't, I actually don't have a problem with that as a methodology. 15 interviews is a quite a large amount of data. And depending on the questions you're asking, if you want to find out like the story of life-saving rules in a company, then finding someone who's relatively senior in safety, who's been around for a while in the company to tell you that story, I think is actually a reasonable way of doing it. The one thing that I would question, um, and I think this is actually where we fall into the problem of non-academic researchers, is I think that they were doing a good thing by hold. They thought they were doing a good thing by holding the set of questions consistent. That's what you call a structured interview. And with this sort of inquiry, we would always do a what we call a semi-structured interview, which allows the researchers to give the participants a bit more freedom to tell the story. You, the more you stick to a very consistent set of questions, the more you can't ask follow-ups or get people to expand or follow down the interesting details that get revealed through the study because you're being careful about always asking the exact same questions in the exact same way. So the study doesn't fulfill its potential, but I don't think that this is a bad method for the types of questions that they're trying to address. I just wish they'd given themselves the opportunity to hear more. Okay, Drew, so let me throw some, I suppose, some numbers about so we know what we're, what's going on in these companies we're talking to. So five of the 15 companies had a consistent set of life-saving rules that applied to all of their site operations everywhere. And I might say, I think 14 of the 15 companies had operations in multiple countries. Four of the companies had designed local sets of rules, so they had a, life, a rule framework, but, but, but different rules at different sites. And six companies had either never had this idea of life-saving rules or had, rem or had previously had them and had removed them. Andrew, five, I guess, in those companies, so there's you know, 10 or so companies that, that, that had rules or had them and removed them. Five of them said that they were critical to their improvements in safety, measured by their lagging indicators. And five companies who said they were moving away because they'd evaluated their potential benefit and decided not not to implement them. So all of a sudden, Drew, right off the bat, we've got 50% of companies with rules saying they're absolutely what's driven all of our improvement. And 50% of companies going unhelpful, moving away. Yeah, it's hilarious that the authors think that these numbers matter. And in the paper, they've even got like little pie charts about what percentage of people said what. With a sample like this, you just can't draw any quantitative conclusions. You want to sample the oil and gas industry in Australia. You got to properly sample the oil and gas industry in Australia, not just pick out 15 companies. But what this does tell us is that they've got a fair sample when it comes to the diversity of opinions. They're not just talking to people who love golden rules. We've got some companies that never even wanted them, some companies that tried them and don't like them, some companies that love them. So that's a fantastic sample when it comes to, do we have a diverse range of opinions here? Let's just explore how people are thinking about things. That's all it can tell us though. The 50%, 50% is meaningless because we could have picked a different set of companies and had 100% or 0%. So Drew, I think that flows through to, and again, you know, the, the, the same thread goes through like even some of the other lines of inquiry. So it's the same group that likes them that say they continue to be relevant, the same group that doesn't like them that says, you know, they're, they're, they're not as relevant. But one of the things that this paper had put together, Drew, is uh, is 15 success factors uh, that sort of came out of these, these interview questions. And like you said, we don't have the interview questions, but we do have these 15 factors uh, that I guess the researchers had themed up from the discussions as being useful for implementation. I don't know if we want to run through these, Drew, or have a quick chat about you know the categories that they fall into. I definitely think we should talk about some because... Some of them are like really revealing about golden rules. And I think the ones that are most interesting is when the companies that are keeping the rules and love them 
And the companies that are abandoning the rules say exactly the same thing about the rules. They just reach different conclusions. Because I think that gives a very, very fair impression that this is universally true. And so I thought the first one that was worth drawing out was the idea of a particular view of just culture and consequences. So the companies that like golden rules, so these are companies in favor of golden rules, say that for success, it's really important to set strict boundaries around the rules and to have clear consequences if people break them. They, they say, in fact, if there are no consequences for breaking the rules, that undermines the rules. It stops them having the value that they have. Um, and typically this is associated with a model of just culture that is very deterministic. So it's the one that says that a just culture is one which has clear expectations and consistent and predictable consequences if you don't meet those expectations. The companies that are abandoning the rules say exactly the same thing. They say, we're moving away from rules because we think that we've moved beyond that sort of culture of strict compliance, that we want to have systems of assessing accidents that are have a less deterministic rule framework that have more nuance around it, have more sensitivity. So I'm not using the exact words they use here. I'm sort of inserting my own interpretation over what they said, but more, more sort of sensitivity to operations, sensitivity to what's actually going on with the workers. So they all, but the important thing there is they both agree that the golden rules are very closely aligned to that very strict consequence, deterministic, punitive management of safety. Even the ones who love it think that that is a good thing. Yeah, Drew, I think that's really, really interesting conclusion that some company, they, the, the companies that uh, think they're really positive and the companies that think they're really quite negative are actually talking about the exact same thing. And Drew, did you want to pull out any others that, that spoke to you about uh, these success factors? Okay, so, so the second one that stood out to me was about this idea of a culture of care. Um, and that stood out to me just because it, I thought it was like an interesting thing. I, I would be very surprised if it was one of the questions that they asked. So it does seem to sort of spontaneously have come out of the data. And that is that along with being very punitive, all of the companies that love golden rules also think it's really important to show their workers that they're doing this for the good of the workers and to explain the importance of safety and the importance of these rules for preserving safety. This could be me misinterpreting, but it seems like a preemptive response to the criticism or response to the backlash, as in like they have to justify to themselves and to their workers why they are being so punitive, because they recognize that punitive is at face value, seems harsh, seems unfair. And so they need to moderate that by saying to themselves and to their workers, yeah, this is strict. Yeah, the consequences are harsh but we're doing it because it is necessary, because it is justified by the safety we achieve through doing it. We're, we're being harsh out of care. Yeah, and Drew, I think that, I, I guess it's like the tough love thing is, I've heard those conversations inside organisations and I'm sure our listeners would have as, as well, which is that, well, we've we've literally uh, dismissed that person because we care so much, we just couldn't live with ourselves if we let them stay around in the company and they hurt themselves. And and. I guess that's the way that you tell yourself that you're doing a really useful thing for that person and for safety if you hold them accountable for for what's happened. I mean, and some organisations have uh, immediate sanction rules if someone's even involved in a near-miss incident not associated with the safety rule where they've got a 48-hour or a 72-hour stand-down until the person's been retrained uh, for any incident that occurs in their work. And I've even had those organisations tell me that, no, no, the workers want to be stood down and the workers want to be retrained. And my comment there is, yeah, they probably tell you that because of how strong that that procedure is inside the company and how little psychological safety they have to tell you what they really think. I guess closely aligned to that is this idea that we are, and I don't know how true this is. I think this is one of the ones where we can't quite take the participants on face value. The people who support golden rules say that it is important that we apply them consistently. So we don't just apply them when there's been an accident. We investigate all breaches of the rule and we require reporting of all breaches of the rule. Um, and they seem to honestly believe, whether it's true or not, that that does in fact happen. So these companies at least think that they have a very good understanding of when the rule is broken, when it's not, that all breaches get reported to them and that they act consistently based on the breach, not based on the consequence. 
And I think from your tone there, Drew, I don't think you would believe that. I believe that they believe it. Yeah, okay. I have no faith at all that that is true. And, I mean, the, the fair way of putting it is this research is incapable of uncovering whether it's true or not because they wouldn't know. Right? The safety managers would not know if there are lots of breaches that are occurring. So we can't say that those breaches are occurring. We can't say that they are occurring. What we can say is that their faith that they would definitely know is misplaced. And this, they this, would not know whether or not it's true. They shouldn't be that confident. And these these data points, Drew, and why I introduced that survey of 500 frontline workers across 33 mine sites at the start of this episode, because if one third of those people say that they break rules regularly and that their frontline leader knows that they're doing it, then if you're in an organization and you have 11 life-saving rule breaches in a year, then those things just don't don't add up. And uh, yeah, and, and I guess that that tells you a lot about your organization's, you know, climate and culture, if you like, as as much as the rule breaches and the and the consequences around them themselves. Dave, there's another one here. This is less about the people who are applying the rules and more of the people who are moving away that I think is worth having a slightly longer conversation about. And that is, I read into this paper that the people who are abandoning the rules, they're doing it because they think they're moving on to something more mature. And the strong hint I got that was explicit in a couple of places was that the more mature thing that they were doing, or at least the thing they thought was more mature, was moving away from golden rules and towards critical controls. The difference being that a golden rule is typically a statement that is very personal and in the about like about an individual's behavior and in the positive and universal. Whereas a critical control is typically a statement about a control around a particular hazard and about the presence of that control. It might be personal or it might be technical, but it's not generic. It's based around when we are doing work involving this specific hazard. So I guess I was, did you get that same impression that that is the movement that people are talking about? And what do you think about that? Yeah, Drew, I think, um, so So I guess in in uh, the resources sector, you had, in, like we mentioned, IOGP produced their life-saving rule international guidance in 2013. And then the ICMM, which is the International Council of Mining and Minerals, produced their critical risk management uh, work by Jim Joy in 2015. And there's lots of guidance like that on, on the internet. And, and I guess these were these competing frameworks. And many organizations that had done life-saving rules saw this critical risk management framework as a as a evolution, a improvement in, in what they're doing. And Drew, I've been involved in a, in a number of organizations helping with this transition from life-saving rules to a critical risk management program. And I guess at, at a high level, the, organi- the organizations are moving away from this punitive culture and saying, as opposed to managers uh, disciplining workers for behaving in a certain way, what we want to do is partner with our frontline workforce in, I guess, ensuring that controls are present when working with a particular hazard or exposed to a hazard. And so I guess it's 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 meant to I guess it's that approach. I guess Drew, like anything though, that that intention can be corrupted by the prevailing climate within the organization, whether you call it a critical risk control or whether you call it a life-saving rule. I guess a lot's going to boil down to the climate which you drop that into. Yes. One of the things they didn't look at all in this paper, which I thought was a really curious omission, is nowhere in this paper did they collect sets of what the rules actually were. So we've got lots of discussion about the use of rules, but not any examination of specific sets of rules. Um, In fact, no comparison of whether those rules actually met the intent of what people were claiming. For example, a number of participants said that it was really important that the rules be phrased as I will rather than I will not or we will not. Um, And we know in the study did we actually get to check whether the rules actually do follow that positive framework. But I think this is one of those situations where in order to distill a simple set of rules, you've got to either be very generic so that your rules apply everywhere, or you've got to be very vague so your rule doesn't stops being a rule and it starts being something like, you know, we will use the appropriate form of protection for the work we're doing, or the rules are just non-applicable. Um, so I've been on sites, for example, during the induction where they've gone through a slide talking about the 10 rules. And then the presenters said, oh, yeah, and for this work site, rule seven and nine, those are the two that matter. None of the rest actually apply to this site. So they, you know, they're golden rules, but most of the work doesn't even have relevance for that set of rules. And I think that's the danger of trying to make things too simple is it becomes either too generic or too vague 
or just not applicable to so many circumstances? Yeah, Drew, I think some, so with that will and will not, uh, I guess this is some of the, the nuance with rules, the things that I've, some of the will nots I think are potentially particularly useful. Like I will not uh, work, walk or work under a suspended load. And then, you know, like a, a like in and around crane operations and, and things like that. Now design your work. So, you know, you've got to understand if the work can still get done, if that's the case. We've seen sort of some great work process innovations just through the sheer need to comply with that rule, changing industry standards around certain work activities and things like that, looking at engineered design stands and a whole range of things to, to try to solve for that rule. And I guess that's where it is a really enabling thing to so say, well, actually, now, we're, now this rule is creating you know, a permanent change to a work process that's physically more safe. But then the other side of the rules is where we see a rule that says, I will not enter a confined space without a permit. Like, that's like just having a life-saving rule to do some paperwork. Like it says nothing about what the control actually has to be. So, so I guess, I guess I'm like you. It would have been good to see rules because not all rules are created equal. And I think this is why this is a very grey area of debate and discussion within organisations and within the safety community. Yeah, and I guess the suspended load is a great example because it's a rule that, for many contexts, you would struggle to find a possibility of an exception, but for many contexts, you would struggle to find even an application. <laughs> like if you're on a worksite that's got no suspended loads, that is a absolutely redundant rule. Yeah, and I guess you talk about localization there, and and I guess that's where critical risk management tries to go to. You know, what are what are the critical risks on this site, and and what are the controls, and 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 what are the critical controls? Now, the whole debate around that, and if I could find some decent research, we could probably do a really good episode. Maybe we'll try and do that before we hit hundred. Drew, we'll, we'll try and find some sort of critical risk paper so that we can extend this conversation. But many organizations are doing their critical risk controls as life-saving rules by another name, maybe without not the quite punitive culture, but like you said there, it's the same set of critical controls and critical risks at every single work site around the world. It's the exact same form that needs to be checked off. It's it's the exact same reporting that shows that 99.99% of the time, all of those critical controls are green and in place for all of the work. And so I think many organizations may not be getting any more value out of their critical risk work than they were getting out of having a set of life-saving rules that kind of no one followed and no one reported anything about. Yeah, I think that is definitely something that is worth following up because I think some of the implementations of critical controls are explicitly intended to move away from this. So I think it's an interesting question to the extent to which they have. But just before we move on to takeaways, I think we can sort of like draw some conclusions against the questions that this paper asked of itself. So the question of are golden rules associated with punitive safety cultures? I think they pretty solidly managed to answer that question in the affirmative. If even the people who love them say, yeah, it's punitive, yeah. then we can pretty much say yes. At least, and, and more possibly even more importantly, they all thought that that was inevitable, that that's like part, an essential part of it. So there's this strong feeling that we can't get away from them being punitive without getting away from the golden rules altogether. Well, I think, Drew, we, we call them rules. We call them rules. I mean, that's like the, the fact is they're rules. Um, and so they, they create compliance, punitive type responses and cultures. Yep. Second thing we can say fairly clearly is that they're associated with a philosophy of safety that's very much around top-down tough love. So management understands what is not necessarily what's best in every case, but certainly understands enough to lay down some inviolable rules that apply in every case and is enforcing them on the workers for the workers' own good. That's the philosophy of applying them. Um, so it would be very difficult to integrate golden rules with a much more worker-focused frontline expertise style approach to safety. Those would be quite inconsistent. And that's a fairly universal message. And then finally is the idea that organizations that are moving away from golden rules aren't necessarily doing it towards a safety to or safety differently approach. Uh, often what they're doing is moving towards a much more context-specific, hazard-specific as sort of like what operations are we doing on this site type approach that may have much of the same philosophy. It just gets away from the generic towards the particular. And so is more sensitive to the local workers in the local context, or at least that's the goal of moving away from local rules. 
So, you know, abandoning local rules doesn't have to come from a safety to or safety differently space. It can just come from a more individualized, less generic safety application space. And so, Drew, this next question about this next item of inquiry about do we actually comply with our rules and how do we know? I think the respondents probably answered yes to that, but I think your comments from earlier would say, yeah, I'm not so convinced. Yeah, I just don't think we can answer that from this paper. You can't ask the person who's implementing the system whether the system works or not. Of course they think it does or they wouldn't be doing it. Of course they think it doesn't or they wouldn't be abandoning it. We, we need different types of work to measure what effect it has. Yeah, and then this question about maybe it's similar, do the life-saving rules continue to address our major hazards? I guess that's something that we, we can't get much insight on from, from this research. We've got to at least see what the rules are. <laughs> to make that sort of judgment. And that last content drew about life-saving rules to our contractors was kind of really interesting because, um, again, this goes to a bit like parent-child tough love because the people said, well, we don't apply our life-saving rules to joint venture companies that we don't have any control over, but we do apply our life-saving rules to all of our contractors because we control them. And so it was kind of like this down-the-line tough love with rules, but no expectation that uh, you know joint venture investments would need to follow them. Which does kind of suggest that their partners in the joint ventures are successfully pushing back as well, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe there's a whole another another podcast about um business models and safety. So Drew, do you want to do some takeaways? So Okay, well you've written the takeaways, so I think you'd better go first. Oh, I dropped a couple in here. And I guess I guess um one of the takeaways from the paper is that, you know, if we've got life-saving rules that define some really clear, really key behavioral controls then they may continue to have relevance in sort of creating margins for safety. Um, and I guess this was sort of, I guess, part of maybe broader than just this research, Drew, but our work on rules rules and procedures in safety, where when we look at all of the other conflicts in the workplace, if you've got a rule that says a driver can't drive for more than 10 hours a day, uh, it really does allow them to call stop after 10 hours, um, no matter what pressure they're getting on from their organisation. So things that can be done and should be done and are supported by the organisation to be done you know, can be really useful in in creating some margins and boundaries around work. And as you mentioned before, even creating innovations in work to avoid breaking the rule. Yeah. So I think there's some some places for this now. Whether you call them gold. So so this is just about should we have should we have uh, I hesitate to even use the word rules, but you know should we have sort of clear expectations about how work happens? Then Drew, the second one here is that there's actually a lot of factors that influence the effectiveness of a life saving rules program. Uh, like 15 factors are highlighted in this paper, but perhaps, or maybe even I suspect that it's actually those factors around the program which you know probably have more influence on on the pro on the effectiveness of the program itself than the con- than the actual content of the rules. It's possible this didn't come through from our discussion, but all of these factors are mostly associated with different aspects of the safety management system. So we've got factors around how accidents are investigation, factors around safety promotion, factors around management commitment. All of these are like other safety activities that all need to be aligned with the philosophy of the life-saving rules for the life-saving rules themselves to work. So in that sense, they might be almost like a centerpiece that guides the structure and the implementation of other safety programs rather than something that just sort of exists in isolation and could never be evaluated in isolation. You couldn't just say, let's take 10 companies, give five of them golden rules, five not, and see if it makes a safety difference. Yeah. And and there's so many more. Like none of these 15 factors that drive um, apparently the effectiveness, none of them talk about co-designing and seeing if the workers you know, actually agree with the rules. None of those factors say find out whether the rules actually match the reality of work and whether they can be followed. None of them say a lot of things that 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 I think also go to this this uh, the effectiveness of anything you're trying to do in this space in in your organisation. So Drew, the third question is third practical takeaway I guess is uh, interesting what you said. I, I, the comment I put here was it's difficult if not impossible to divorce a life saving rule program from the development of a punitive safety culture. Yeah, if there was anything that reading this paper and talking about it changed my mind about, it's about the extent to which that might be inevitable. Um, I think I almost started the podcast saying that I'd be willing to accept life-saving rules coming from a different philosophy. Actually, even as we've talked through it, I've been reminded of the bits in the paper, I'm thinking, no, they actually build a fairly convincing case that the two are so linked that you'd basically need to wait a generation before reintroducing them. Otherwise, people are going to remember how linked they are to a punitive safety culture. Yeah, Andrew, I think they mentioned in the paper, like even even experiences in, even if your organisation is doing this, you know, different to the rest of industry, people who come into your 
your organization with experiences of rules in in other organizations and punitive cultures around that that the leak into your organization will be unable to be sort of prevented and and drew the fourth takeaway here i've got about critical control management it may provide a useful approach to be to be partnering with the workforce on on the presence of risk controls as kind of opposed to what i said managers disciplining workers and contractors for their behavior so creating creating some locally relevant effective controls for the hazards in partnership with your workforce and then um, mechanisms to 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 have them in place could be a useful approach but again like i think we said is uh still has to be done very very well to not be to not suffer from all of the same things as your life-saving rules program but i, I think if you were in an organization that had life-saving rules and you were looking to move away from them then looking at something like a shift to site-specific or operation-specific critical control management might be a lot more easy to do within the current frameworks and philosophy than trying something like you know a safety to challenge to the golden rules. Let's throw them out, ritually burn them, and trust our workers. You might find that move towards critical control is politically much easier and is much more of an incremental step. Yeah, that's been my experience, Drew. So do you want to have any more takeaways? Uh, nope, I'm happy with that said. So Drew, the question we asked this week was, do the benefits of life-saving rules outweigh the negative or potential or negative consequences? Uh, well, you, you've got written down in our notes, probably not. <laughs> I, I'm actually thinking that this paper doesn't really answer that question. Um, what it does is answers is says that the life-saving rules are intrinsically tied to this punitive culture. So if you're like me and like I'm pretty sure like you, David, thinking that a punitive culture is not positive for safety, then I think you just have to follow down that path and say, yeah, probably not. Well, Drew, I think even though you cautioned on the on the use of quantification of such a small sample, I guess the answer to this question of do the benefits outweigh the negative consequences, I guess half the people think yes and half the people think no. So I guess if you're walking down the safety street and you ask two safety people, one of them are going to say yes and one of them are going to say no to whether the benefits of life-saving rules outweigh the negative consequences. So I guess up, it's up to our listeners to decide for themselves. <laughs> Yeah, but I think the decision is which group do you want to stand with given the other things that the people who say yes stand by as well? Yes, yes. All right. So anyone wants Drew's email address, please let me know. <laughs> and um, that's it for this week. Uh, we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any of your comments directly to Drew. Um, questions, ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. <laughs>